Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 48. This week, it's the whole gang here. It's myself, Michael, with Gladys, Sarah, and Mark. We also have a guest, Al Erdley, who's here to talk to us about compliance manager and security scores. But before we get to Al, why don't we take a lap around the news? Sarah, why don't we kick things off? Sure, I will kick some things off with some very unsurprising coverage from myself. I'm going to talk about what's new in Sentinel. Uh, we did mention on the news that we had an event last week, uh, which was uh, talking about some of the new features and products uh, releases that we've had. Uh, we did it instead of RSA because RSA has been postponed. A lot of cool things uh, from a lot of different products, but let me pick some of my favorites. Um, for a start, in Sentinel, you we now have a MITRE support coverage mapping thing, which is very cool. I know a lot of customers have been asking for it. So if you go and open it up, you can see where you actually have coverage in Sentinel against those different uh, tactics uh, in the MITRE framework. Uh, you can also have a look at Azure Purview data. The other, the two that I'm really excited about is uh, you can search um, archived logs. So uh, when I say search, essentially um, we're doing something called basic logs. And what it means is they're very, they're a lot cheaper uh, to store things in. You can't do everything across them. They have some limitations, but it's basically a way to keep data for a longer period of time in Sentinel uh, that you don't need to actively query, but uh, you may need for something else later down the track. Um, that's gone into public preview. That one's definitely worth checking out. Uh, unless you can manually run playbooks on the incident trigger, which makes me a very happy lady, uh, something that we've needed uh, for quite a long time. Uh, I'm just going to stick with my Sentinel this, this week. Hey, Sarah, on the MITRE framework, that's MITRE attack, right? Yes, it is. Oh, yes, I forget. There's more than one MITRE now, isn't there? Oh, there's, there? a, so, there's a lot of different frameworks, yes. yeah. Okay, cool. Yes. I have quite a few news items uh, this week. Uh, the first one literally has just come across my desk, uh, and that is that uh, in GitHub, we have this tool called CodeQL, which is a static analysis framework. Um, we now have added machine learning to it. So for those of you who are not familiar with CodeQL, so the best way of thinking about CodeQL is imagine static analysis with a query language. In other words, um, there's an engine that runs and it analyzes your code and it builds up uh, essentially a database of the abstract uh, syntax tree, like data flow analysis and so on of the, of the code. And then you can query that just like you can essentially a database. Um, and the language is very SQL-esque, so that's CodeQL. And in fact, there's, you know, there are libraries of, of queries that you can, you can sort of download from GitHub. So for example, you could say, if some data you know, is entered at this point, then goes through here, here, and here, and then it is uh, used in this particular way, and the data is of a certain shape, then that's a security vulnerability. The really nice thing is it's almost democratizing the way people build queries uh, into static analysis tools. So that's CodeQL. Well, now we've just added uh, machine learning. Now, it's in, it's in preview right now, but this is actually really cool because you know, if you take the way uh, static analysis tools work, they basically do... Uh, they do data flow analysis and so on and so forth. Whereas, so you've got CodeQL, you've got like deep logical analysis, uh, deductive reasoning. Well, machine learning now does you know, essentially inductive reasoning, right? So it's inducing, you can actually say, hey, this code has a SQL injection vulnerability in it, and it can sort of deduce, deduce the, the paths and the data that actually ends up getting there. So it's sort of machine learning. You say, yeah, that really is a SQL injection vulnerability or cross-site scripting or you know, directory traversal or whatever, or memory corruption. 
But yeah, this is actually really cool to see. Uh, I think this is going to be a, a really important pr- uh, product moving forward. Um, CoQL already is, but I think adding machine learning is just adding that extra layer of uh, applicability. Uh, the next one is a, a tool named Cloudnox. We actually purchased this company last year. Um, I saw a demo of this a couple of weeks ago. This is actually really cool. Uh, essentially, the way I like to look at it is you deploy you know, some solutions in Azure, or in fact, in this case, AWS or GCP, and you add RBAC policies, and you add authorization here and authorization there, and then over a period of time, you get this sort of permission creep, right? You know, people leave the company, people change roles, people no longer have need, need to have access to data, but the but the permission is still there. Well, CloudNox lets you manage that. And um, again, I saw a demo of this a couple of weeks a couple of weeks ago, and I was pretty blown away because you can actually see all the the change in permissions over a period of time. And actually, just start querying it to find out, you know, do people actually need these kinds of permissions or not? And that extends not just to app from Azure, it's Azure, AWS, and GCP, which again is, you know, a demonstrative of Microsoft's commitment to um, cross cloud strategies. The next one, which I'm going to be honest, I've been waiting for this thing for a long time, and that is the ability to call APIs from your code to write your data to Microsoft. Uh, sorry, Azure monitor logs. Um, sometimes you may want to have like some custom data added to a, a log analytics workspace. Well, you can now do that uh, relatively easily. It's, it's in preview right now. Uh, the link's going to be in the show notes and you can sign up for that. The next one, not really security related, but I've had a lot of customers just recently talking about distributed denial of service attacks, certainly with the current geopolitical issues that are going on with Russia and Ukraine. And a lot of customers have been have been talking about it, about making sure they have appropriate mitigations in place around DDoS uh, and other other defenses as well, but certainly DDoS. The tool that we now have available it's in it's in preview. It's called um, Azure Load Testing, and it's a way of simulating load across your your Azure application. And frankly, if you can't if if your application can't hand Azure Load Testing, it's probably not going to be able to handle um, other kinds of attacks as well. You know other than the, the mitigations that come with Azure. So take a look at that. Azure load testing, not a direct security tool, but it certainly has some security ramifications. The next one is uh, we've just introduced this in preview, Azure Active Directory with a multi-stage access review process. Again, this is the, this is this sort of feature, you know, this RBAC creep, right? This sort of permission creep. And in this example, you can say, okay, uh, you know, Fred needs access to something and it can go through a pipeline to get review. Historically, we could do it with multiple people, but it was sort of everyone had to be in the same air quotes in the same room to, you know, at the same time. Now we actually have a process that can go end to end to a workflow where someone can get signed off to allow them you know, access to something. So that's, uh, that's awesome to see as well. So the next item is a colleague of mine, Eric Boshane, has started a new blog series uh, called Introduction to Drafting a Winning Cybersecurity Strategy. It's really great material. Uh, Eric is one of those people who's really good at looking at the, you know, the big picture, the sort of strategic picture around cybersecurity. Uh, it's really well written. Uh, a lot of it is really good, you know, just good, good old common sense. And finally, Cosmos DB now has a Defender product, uh, Microsoft Defender for Cosmos DB. It's very similar to the way Microsoft Defender for SQL Server works, in that it looks for things like access from sort of uh, suspicious uh, locations, as well as what you might consider suspicious data exfiltration. So pretty similar to what we do in SQL Server today. That's in preview, so uh, if you're using Cosmos DB, uh, go ahead and uh, kick the tires on it. Yeah, so from my side, uh, it's really 
One uh, one key thing that I wanted to highlight, it's already been out there for a little bit, but um, I'm actually getting ready to do a webinar for it in a little bit um, live. The Zero Trust Commandments is out uh, from the open group, and um, it's actually fully out, so you don't have to you know register or anything like that for a free account and all that like you used to. It's just you go to the link now. So we uh, put the link in the show notes. Um, but the uh, Zero Trust Commandments are... The, the successor, the replacement for the original Jericho commandments that kind of kicked off the whole zero trust thing and treat deperimeterization and how do you think about security in sort of this new practical way that doesn't rely on, you know, everything at the edge, you know, for detection, for blocking, et cetera. Um, and how do we, you know, now protect in this age where your devices could be anywhere, your apps, your data could be anywhere. Um, and so, you know, we, we really like the idea of the original Jericho form commandments that were very clear, non-negotiable, here are the rules, period. And so these uh, Zero Trust commandments are out. We kind of took that same style, updated them for the world today, took uh, some direct and indirect inspiration from the original Jericho ones, and then adapted it to cloud and mobile and all the things that we deal with today, multi-cloud, you name it. And these are really the the second step of three um, to actually having Zero Trust becoming a global standard, which is kind of cool. Um, and we're actually going to um, cover that in the webinar, so we'll add that, the link to that if it's available. Um, but uh, effectively, we've started with the core principles, you know, defining zero trust, what it is, et cetera. And then those really hardcore, non-negotiable rules of the road and the zero trust commandments is within the open group. By the way, uh, the open group also does TOGAF, and they were the original ones that defined the Unix and POSIX standards, which was, you know, kind of crazy for me. I'm like, wow, um, <laughs> these folks have been around for a while. And then the and TOGAF is the open group architecture framework. Um, so it's kind of enterprise architecture standard. And then uh, the one that's coming up is the zero trust reference model. And so this is where we actually... And so the zero trust reference model that's coming out soon is uh, where it becomes a standard. So we're taking um, the definitions, the rules, and resolving those into a very specific prescriptive model of, you know, these are the different functions and capabilities that zero trust will produce. Um, this is how they interact, how they work together, et cetera. So really um, making zero trust real and, uh, and putting it out there as an open standard, you know, through the standard, you know, uh, open review process, et cetera, that the open group uses. So lots more cool stuff to come there, but uh, definitely check out the Zero Trust Commandments in the meantime. These are the rules of the road for Zero Trust in a very clear, unequivocal, uh, non-negotiable, I think is the term we used. That's, uh, that's all I got for this week. Today, my focus will be on identity-related re releases. I am really excited about the unification work that we have been doing with Microsoft Defender Services. As many of you know, Few years ago, we saw the need for enabling cross-service collaboration and unification of insight in order to help customers to detect, respond, and recover faster. Well, Defender for Identity is now fully integrated into the Microsoft 365 Defender Unified experience. If you haven't uh, seen it, I recommend watching the Microsoft 365 Defender Unifier experience for XDR's video that the product group released. I have, I have included uh, the link in our website, but you could also search it in YouTube. Again, the title is Microsoft 365 Defender Unified Experience for XDR. In addition, in February 20th, Defender for Identity added the S-host attribute as part of the values that can be forwarded to the, your SIM. 
this host provides the account, uh, usually this is uh, the machine account, that is involved in the alert. Before this update, we only send the US user account. However, since many users can, can be using multiple devices, we saw the opportunity to trigger automation within other Microsoft Defender services by uh, providing this value. You can review the full CEF format by visiting the link I have provided in our uh, site. In addition, in that page, you will see a list of sample logs and expected values that we send to SIMS, uh, uh, which comply with RFC 5424 and RFC 3164. All right, now the news is out of the way. Uh, let's turn our attention to our guest uh, this week we have Al Erdley, who's here to talk to us about compliance and secure scores. Uh, Al, hey, welcome so much to the podcast. We'd like to spend a moment, uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, great to be here. So yeah, my name's Al Erdley. Um, so I joined Microsoft about a year ago, working in the Microsoft Technology Center in the UK. For those who don't know what the, the Microsoft Technology Centers are, we're a, a global network of teams working in different locations and our mission is to deliver immersive experiences and deep technical engagements um, for clients so we really try and enable customers to understand how to apply uh, Microsoft technology so we're really trying to help them overcome obstacles and understand the scope of what we can actually deliver um, from a Microsoft perspective. So one thing we're here to talk about is essentially secure score and compliance. So this is an area where you know I spend quite a bit of time as well. I'm um, you know I'm a big believer in compliance programs um, so long as people are realistic about them. You know for example, I've mentioned mentioned to many many customers, you know just because you're compliant doesn't necessarily mean you're secure, you're compliant. Um, they're not necessarily the same thing. Uh, but that being said, you know I, I think if you're not compliant, I can almost guarantee you're probably not not secure in many cases as well. Um, I'm working with a customer right now um, in healthcare, and we're doing we're going through this, a similar exercise with them right now. So we're actually looking primarily at their Azure environment and looking at it from a uh, an ISO twenty seven double oh one perspective, and then helping that to drive NIST SP eight hundred fifty three controls. So is that kind of the sort of stuff that you work on? I mean, you work on the the tooling and technology and advice uh, for customers in that area. Absolutely. So we work with clients um, like the client you're working with who they have a need to demonstrate that they are adhering to um, a standard of one sort or another. So whether that is a, a global standard like ISO 27001 or NIST um, or whether it's a, an industry standard like, like HIPAA or something like GDPR, clients who need to be able to demonstrate how they are compliant to those regulations, um, we we provide a lot of information for them to help them understand the capabilities, but then importantly, to help them understand what actions they need to take to actually get to that compliant state. You know, how do they measure where they are to start with, work out what they need to actually do to get there, and then to help them plan what actions and activities they need to do to, to implement those those standards. 
So when we're talking about this, are we talking about Azure or are we talking about Microsoft 365? It may be worthwhile explaining to our listeners the difference between Azure and Microsoft 365 um, and some of the compliance requirements that that encompass those two two environments. Would you like to just spend a little moment explain that? Absolutely. So where you're looking at, and I guess you know this almost comes down to the the terminology as well, because we see a lot of different ways that the the word in compliance is used in some of the the context around this. So when we're thinking about Microsoft 365, it's software as a service. So we're really talking about how we configure that service and how we configure the different tools that somebody may have purchased based on their license levels um, and making sure that those tools are configured to deliver on what they they need to actually adhere to based on the the requirements um, that they're trying to to aim for. So when we're talking about Microsoft 365, we've we've got a few things in there. We've got compliance score, which is really talking about how they manage the the content, uh, how they manage the configuration of the compliance side of things in terms of measuring against the standards. And then you've got the secure score as well. That's really how we make sure that the the environment is actually secured. They both play back to the standards that you might be trying to aim for, so those ISO and NIST standards. And then you've got Defender for Cloud, um, which is more of the Azure side. Uh, and because that's not so much of the software as a service as platform as a service, that's more. there's more flexibility and there's more, I guess, granularity in terms of, you know, you might have two SQL instances that are both set up, but they're configured slightly differently. So you you'd be looking at those different instances discreetly in terms of how well they actually comply um, to the requirements that you are aiming for. But when we're looking at the Microsoft 365 side of it, it's very much around how we configure the Microsoft 365 services um, that, that come with that tenant. That you, you hit on something really interesting there. You said compliance score and secure score. You know, I've done a lot of work with secure score, especially in you know, Microsoft Defender for Cloud, which was... Um, Azure Security Center, and a lot of customers that I've worked with have focused on you know, helping drive that number up, not artificially, you know, actually driving it up with you know real, you know, making real demonstrable security improvements to their environment. But it's been very much around around Azure, you know, their Azure uh, deployments, and in the Microsoft Defender for Cloud. I also see that there are compliance items in there as well. So it'll say that you know you must encrypt, you know, for example, volumes at rest for SQL Server, for example, multi-factor authentication, those kinds of things. And I'll then say, oh, and that you know maps onto NIST SP 800-53, blah 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 blah, or it maps onto the Azure Security Benchmark, blah 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 blah, or it maps onto the Center for Internet Security you know, requirements, you know, one two three four, and so on. But that's not compliance score, though, right? That is just how a set of controls in Azure maps to various compliance programs, but that is not compliance score. So could you explain compliance score? Yeah, so the the, the compliance score element, I guess, is a, a different set of controls. So it's really looking about how you're looking after your information where it's stored in Microsoft 365, so where you're classifying content, um, where you're labeling content, where you're applying the rules to protect that content. So whether it's data loss prevention, uh, whether it's, you know, conditional access to make sure that, you know, you're bringing together, you know, the risk of the user, the location of the content, the risk of the device. Um, But basically the compliance, we think of that more around how you're managing 
the content that you're storing and your interactions with that content, as opposed to the secure score, which certainly in, in Microsoft 365 is looking more around how we secure the identity, how we authenticate, how we're uh, minimizing the risk that somebody would present based on the device that they're using, the compliance of that device to certain benchmarks that you're setting as an organizational standard. So it's split in terms of the compliance score content once you're in, how do you access that content, insider risks, how you're using the, the content and preventing it leaking out of the organization, as opposed to the secure score, which is how do we make sure that whoever's coming into the organization is secure uh, and is trustworthy. So it's slightly, slightly different. And I guess the defender for cloud, when you get to the Azure element, is more of that going back 15 years is what I would have called sort of the hardening, the securing of the the network, the, um, the implementations that you've got, the services that you've actually implemented, the configurations that you've set up. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. I mean, is there an overlap? There is an overlap. There, okay. Yeah, there is. And, and I guess this is where, you know, I, I hear a lot of clients go, well, why are there, why are there three places that you can go? Um, to get different scores, you know, why can't we just make it, you know, one location where you can see everything? And I guess, you know, that that would ideally be uh, a much easier way to manage everything. There's a few reasons why they're separated. One is, you know, the people who are managing them, they might actually be different. They might have different skill sets, different depth of understanding around different areas. And, you know, when you're thinking about the compliance manager so the interface the admin interface in microsoft 365 around compliance there's a lot of secure access that you need so there's a lot of elements within that that you're configuring and using to get that compliance score increased where you have i wouldn't say global admin but you have very high levels of permissions to actually access contents across the board whereas the Secure score is very much more traditional sort of infrastructure and identity management. So you've got different skill sets that's needed to, to actually manage these. And it also very much depends on the, the license levels that you've actually purchased as to what services you can actually use to, to increase these scores. All of these controls are played back to the standards that you're actually aiming for. You know, if you're looking at something like NIST 800-53, you know, we're looking at there's what about twelve hundred controls there, which results just just for the Microsoft three six five side of it, in about five thousand recommendations of things that you should actually configure. So there's a lot of a lot of different recommendations of what you need to do to configure to get the most out of the uh, the Microsoft three six five solutions um, and make them compliant with with NIST SB eight hundred fifty three. One of the things that we um, always try to do is uh, beat up the tasks that the analysts are doing or the uh, engineers are doing in the environment. So I was going to uh, lead it uh, kind of like, you know, we are as part of our strategy, we're always uh, talking about meantime to acknowledge or remediate and um, uh, how do we enable customers uh, to move on on all the recommendations, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that making it as easy as possible to actually implement these these recommendations is something that I think a lot of work has been put in around that. So 
where you look at the recommendations in the interface, there's often a button to click to say, configure it, uh, and to basically take you to exactly the right place to actually make the change that you need to make. So it is something that is made as easy as possible to allow people to manage. I think the other thing about those recommendations, you know, the number of recommendations is often clients will have, you know, potentially another solution in place. They might be using as an interim solution or they might be using as a permanent solution so they can mitigate some of those recommendations where maybe they they don't need to implement them because they've got an alternate solution and some of them might need more planning before they actually roll them out. So that there's very much a, a, a sense that we're not just making those recommendations, we're giving clients the ability to manage those recommendations, to prioritize them, um, and to track them as they actually roll them out and implement them. Having 5,000 recommendations is is a little daunting for a lot of organizations when they first look at this. Yeah, so one thing you mentioned is not just are uh, there approximately 5,000 recommendations, but there's also 1,200 NIST SP800-53 controls. What sort of coverage do we have of those controls? I mean, is it 50%, 60%? You know, kind of roughly, what do we have? I mean, I realize that there's some stuff in NIST Again, I mean, specific NIST SP800-53 that is totally outside of our, or more accurately, the tenant's control. So, for example, things like you know, doors on locks and so on is something that's a you know, classic example of the shared responsibility model, right? So that is something that we in ASIA take care of. But then there's other things that the tenant can take, can take control of. So roughly, you know, what sort of coverage do we have there? I'm not sure of the exact percentage in terms of all of them, but what I would say is that Having been in a position where you know you're running an audit and you're presenting information back of those recommendations, those are the technical recommendations about what can you configure to make your tenant more compliant to that that those requirements. You can also download a spreadsheet of all of the recommendations, and that spreadsheet actually has a whole load more recommendations which are outside of the remit of the technology so where it's processes and documentation that the compliance manager can't really manage for you so when you are in an organization and you're going through the auditing process um, and you have to demonstrate these things there's probably another probably another 5,000 or so controls or recommendations where you actually need to do those outside of the technology. So all of those documentation and process, you know, interviews with users, as you say, the things that we can't influence from a technology perspective. So there's there's probably 50% of the technology and 50% that is is process and documentation based on when you actually export the the full list in the Excel export. So uh, going back to helping a customer drive all those recommendations uh, forward as fast as possible, how do we help them prioritize? Uh, And the reason that I'm trying to focus on that is because I see other uh, type of solutions that uh, provide guidance, but then the um, a customer has to go through the environment configuration and and define uh, which areas are being affected and, and, and what is the priority of each one of them. Can you explain a little bit about that? Each recommendation comes with a, a number of points that will contribute towards the scores. So the scores are usually measured as a, as a percentage um, and the total number of points and the achievable points is based on 
the licensing that's available. So where we have a recommendation, each recommendation will have a number of points um, that will allow you to move forward with your your score. So you can prioritize based on the number of points and to get, you know, the most most bang for the buck in terms of the the way that a configuration will help move you forward. And I guess, you know, one thing to point out here is that these three scores, the compliance score, the secure score, both in Microsoft 365 and in the secure score in Defender for Cloud, they all have the recommendations. They refer back to the to the assessments and to the to the measures against the standards in slightly different ways. So the compliance score within the compliance manager is probably the most mature in terms of you can choose from, I think it's about 700 different assessments and you can choose which ones to actually implement and that will give you those recommendations. They are very granular in terms of what they're allowing you to do. So you can have one recommendation that will hit multiple sets of requirements around the standards. The secure score doesn't have quite the same granularity, doesn't have quite the same control in terms of which ones do you want to, to aim for. Uh, and the Defender for Cloud has a set of standards, but you can't really choose some of the more granular ones in terms of you know the, the much more regional sort of requirements. So where you've got state-level legislation that you might want to adhere to, regions, specific industry ones the compliance score will have far more choice in terms of the, the different assessments that you could be using there. So it sounds like it's a lot more granular than secure score. Don't get, don't get me wrong. I mean, secure score is, is pretty granular, but it sounds like you go above and beyond, you know, very low level sort of technical controls to, I mean, higher level technical controls, but but a heck of a lot more of them, like looking at the technical requirements through a, through a compliance lens. Is that a, a fair comment? I mean, as a security center, sorry, Microsoft Defender for Cloud, I, I still say it. You know, they, they are very, they're very technical. They're very specific to specific services within Azure. They're not necessarily purely compliance driven. I mean, we do show the mappings onto various compliance programs, but it's almost like the compliance part of it is like a, I'm not going to say secondary, but it's the prime focus is like, let's look at the technical controls. You know, by themselves, and these are best practices that you should do. Whereas in the Microsoft Compliance, sorry, the Microsoft 365 Compliance Manager, compliance is like the the goal, and then we look at what technical controls are required to support those goals. Is that a, a fair comment? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that is that is a fair comment. I mean, the the secure score and the hardening, yeah, things that you are going to be looking at putting in place. There's probably more granularity in the compliance scores because of the number of different elements that they're actually measuring and the way that those are applied to the 700 odd uh, assessments that are available. But that being said, there'll be a lot that is common across a lot of those, those requirements. So, you know, implementing MFA, for example, is something that you'd kind of think, well, that's a secure score kind of element, but it's in the compliance score as well. And it will apply to most of the the requirements that are there and it will have quite a high number of points associated with it but then there's going to be some things that are far more granular far more low level in terms of you know putting the automation in that you might say actually we need to automatically apply labels uh, we need to automatically be classifying our data based on the content so those types of elements tend to be the more granular lower level elements that are in the the compliance score 
So we've kind of just touched on ISO 27001 and NIST SP800-53, and you mentioned um, HIPAA, for example. Are there other compliance programs that we we consider in the uh, compliance manager? There's about 700 odd assessments. So there's some out of the box assessments. So we have some secure benchmarks that are in there. Uh, we've got things like GDPR that's that's out of the box. But then there are a lot of more regional, more niche um, standards that you can get assessments for. So it will measure against things like the the New Zealand GCIO, Spain ENS, the Japan FISC. Then we've got things like FedRAMP, we've got NIST, uh, we've got DOD. There's all sorts of different types of assessments that are available depending on what an organization needs to adhere to. Um, so they could choose those those assessments based on their industry, based on what they are, where they are working, where they are operating. And a nice thing about these these scores is that it will come up with one recommendation that will you know tick the box across multiple assessments. So if you are assessing yourself against ISO, NIST, GDPR, FedRAMP, then one recommendation could apply to to requirements in all of those. So uh, how do we uh, ensure that there's not a drift? Many companies are uh, looking at different uh, compliance requirements, security compliance. So how do we make sure that uh, they don't lose track of what is happening accordingly to these compliance uh, requirements? A great question. And I think it really highlights, actually, that this isn't a one-off exercise that you do and, and then it's done. So there's a few things that are in place within within these scores. So you can see the, the change in time. So Microsoft updates, you know, the guidance in terms of how you adhere to, to the legislation, how you adhere to, adhere to the standards. So if we update the technology, um, then there might be, you know, new options that you need to consider and configure appropriately. The assessments that we're using in terms of the checks that we're doing against a tenant, those will evolve as the requirements of the, the standards change, but also as the way the, the technology changes as well. So you need to keep on top of those updates. So check in you know, on a regular basis to make sure that you are accepting updates to the assessments that you're using and then reviewing what you're actually doing in response to those as well and making sure that you are consciously checking should you change something is there something new that you need to do is a key part of it the scores don't stay static they do carry on changing as as we change the assessments and the other thing that's in quite a few of these is that to adhere to uh, some of these these requirements you need to be checking things like the audit logs and checking incidents and making sure that you're actually responding to the outputs of some of the configurations that we're re- recommending you put in. So you can't just set it all up and go, okay, on the 1st of January, we've got a score of 100% because it will slowly go down as you don't if you don't check it. So there is drift reports in there to show you what's changed, um, how your score has changed over time. Uh, and there, as I say, there are updates to the assessments which will change the recommendations that you need to carry out and, and how you need to configure things. My guess is, though, that the changes to assessments are relatively rigorous. What I mean by that, we don't just go and make changes. If a compliance program changes, then we would make changes to, obviously, also if our technology changes, then obviously, yes, we would add new compliance requirements. 
or new compliance checks. But we don't just sort of like willy-nilly just go in and just like, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Let's go and change, you know, let's go and add something. I know that Eurodiogenes is going to get mad at me when I say this, but, you know, the as you sorry, the Microsoft Defender for Cloud, Secure Score, you know, they're, they're constantly adding new checks, but they're not driven by any compliance program. They're driven by folks saying, hey, we really, we really need to start looking at these kinds of things. So, for example, there's a set of requirements or a set of checks that are coming out soon. They're currently in uh, in preview for making sure that endpoints all use TLS, for example. And if you have an endpoint that doesn't have TLS, your secure score is going to drop when those things go live. But my guess is that the, the checks that we do in the compliance score are a little bit more rigorous. Probably isn't the right word, but I'll, but I'll just use the word rigorous right now. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they change all the time. And it's not always adding lots of things that need to be updated sometimes it's just changing the way they're checking and you know because the legislation has changed slightly in most cases it's more because there's a new option that's been released there's a new element of the technology which needs to be taken into account uh, in order to to make sure that you are retaining the level of of compliance that you had had previously but if you don't check it then the score just just will continuously go down. So you do need to to actively be checking for those updates, consciously checking, do I need to actually make a change to something because of those updates? At some point, the rubber has to hit the road and an organization has to go through the whole um, compliance process with an independent auditor because you know, we can't do it, Microsoft can't do it, Azure can't do it, uh, the customer can't do it, it has to be someone independent. So how do we see this compliance score and Microsoft compliance sensor being used in the real world? Like when a, you know, when an auditor is involved, I mean, what do we see, how do the auditors use this information, if at all? In my experience before joining Microsoft, we used a lot of these tools to actually get ourselves to uh, being compliant with things like ISO 27001. Um, and as you say, you know, Microsoft can't certify an organization that they are compliance. We can't self-certify. So we need to have auditors coming in. And one of the things that we did with the auditors was to agree how we were going to provide evidence of our compliance. So, you know, asking the question, what do you need me to show you when you come back in six months time um, so that I can demonstrate that I'm compliant? You know, these tools really help in that respect because, we can then show an auditor, you know, our compliance manager. Um, so we can show them what we've done. We can show them that we are following the recommended best practice in terms of how we're configuring the platform, how we're configuring a Microsoft 365 tenant. And if they want to see those those granular configurations, we can show them that. We can show them the audit logs if they want to see that. We've then got the tools to be able to show them that. And, you know, we can export the status. We can you know, file that as a record of a point in time as part of that audit. So long as the, the auditors understand what we are showing them and they understand, you know, that we are providing that evidence, then it, that works out very well. And as I said earlier, that, you know, a lot of what an auditor might actually be asking for may be things that are less technical. They're not the configuration of the technology, but the processes that surround the technology, you know, how do you respond to an incident that is raised? You know, how do you respond to a violation of a, a sharing policy or a DLP policy, data loss prevention? And those are processes that you know we can't manage from from within the tenant, within the the compliance manager. So we need to be clear with the auditors up front what we can show and 
tell them that's what we're going to show them so they understand exactly what they're seeing and the value that it has um, in relation to the audits. I think, you know, the, the other thing that we found whilst I was going through this with an organization was, you know, some of our insurers were looking at these same tools, not from a, a compliance, so to speak, but from a securities perspective to say, you know, if we know that you have the right processes and the right security setup in place, then, you know, some of the insurance premiums could be reduced as well based on the same kind of evidence. Yeah, it's just funny you should bring up the last point. Um, I've been working with... Um some folks in this area as well, and where they're looking at things like Microsoft Defender for Cloud Secure Score. But actually, that's what we're looking at right now. It is exactly for this reason: is you know, let's come up with a list of Secure Score settings or you know outcomes to show that not only is there a level of due diligence being done, but also that you know there are certain things in place that will actually you know reduce the cost of the premiums, as you say, for. Um, for cybersecurity insurance. In fact, one thing we've even been talking about is, you know, if your secure score is below a certain level, get it up to the specific level before before we'll even talk to you. Uh, and I think that's that's reasonable, right? I mean, this is something that's uh, very objective. It's an objective measurement. And, um, you know, if you're not doing the, the basics, then, you know, you're probably going to get whacked anyway. And I probably wouldn't insure you either, to be honest with you. But not that I'm an insurance company, but, you know, nor am I an underwriter by any stretch. But, I probably wouldn't insure you either. So it's great to see that, actually. I think that's really positive, I think, for the industry as a whole. Yeah, and I think, as you say, it's it's doing your putting your own effort in, making sure that you're you're getting to a certain point. I mean, I've seen organizations that I've been speaking to around this, you know, thinking, well, you know, do we target our team to say that we need the the scores to be over 80%, you know, and that's that's a performance target, you know, to keep those scores at a certain level. So, yeah, it's it's a good metric to have at our disposal how we use it we just need to make sure that we're using it appropriately you know i saw i had one client who said they wanted to set a target to make it 100 percent. i don't think i've ever seen a, a secure score or a compliance score of 100 percent. i don't even know whether it's actually possible to get to that point because you know it is it is constantly evolving but it is a good measure to to start with and to start those conversations with oh i've seen people hit 100 percent and I'm going to be honest with you, they basically exempted themselves from a whole bunch of stuff. And I, I just don't agree with that at all. And, and as, you, as you say, you may be 100% today, but tomorrow that might change You know, as we, we onboard some new checks. Again, you know, discussions that I've had with customers, uh, I had one just recently where they wanted to exempt something. And I'm like, no. In fact, it was multi-factor authentication. I'm like, no. You know, there's a reason why subscription owners require multi-factor authentication. There are very strong, good, practical reasons why owners of a subscription should have multi-factor authentication. I'm not going to exempt it. I, I think that's that's completely wrong. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very leery, actually, of people wanting just to make a score, just to reach a score by whatever means. And in fact, this, this conversation I've just had recently was basically, you know, yes, we want to raise our secure score, but we're going to make sure we're raising the secure score with stuff that really matters, you know, and, and making sure that we're actually really doing the right things uh, and certainly not, not exempting ourselves from certain checks. 
Yeah, I'm a little bit leery of uh, of just sort of wanting to to make a score for the sake of making a score without thinking of the true security ramifications of what they're doing. And frankly, there are diminishing returns as well. You get to a point where you know the real security benefit starts to sort of uh, not be as not as impactful as it was. Certain things are way more impactful than other things. So, for example, multi-factor authentication is just massive, right? Um, and it's worth its you know ten percent whatever whatever it is. And there are other ones that are not as impactful. And you know that's also represented in the you know in the percentage improvement. But you know, let's focus on the on the big ones that really make you know hu- a huge difference, um, not just from a compliance perspective, but just from an overall doing the right thing perspective. So, following on what Michael just um, mentioned, there's people that accept uh, different items, uh, such as MFA. Is there any way to keep track of this and follow up on these items uh, to make sure that uh, in the future, as the environment evolves? The, co- the customer can continue uh, looking at uh, the particular items uh, that they have accepted or even uh, new updates? So, yes, they can, they can see when the assessments are updated. That's basically saying that the, the checks or the recommendations have changed. And so when they see those changes come through, they can have a look at all of them. So it'll sh- it can show, you know, you can use the filters to to show everything uh, or just to show the things that you haven't exempted. So you can still see the ones that you've chosen to exempt. You can still see any updates to those. So you can be flagged when when things have changed and therefore when you have to, to revisit it as well. As well, one final thought on that, and that is if you're exempting something, you better have a really good reason for exempting it. Because remember, a lo- uh, you know, a- an auditor is going to look at this. And there better be a really good reason for for exempting yourself from you know satisfying some requirement. The most common you know, reason for exempting I found is because they have something that is not detected by by our tooling. You know that's that's quite common, and that's fine. But exempting something just because you don't think it's a good idea um, is probably not the right answer. Anyway, that's just my my sort of final thoughts on on that. And talking of final thoughts, Al, one thing we ask our guests on every episode is if you had one final thought to leave our listeners with, uh, what would it be? My final thought on this would be think carefully about what you want to achieve in terms of the compliance and the standards you want to achieve, and then plan and work with your auditors to actually work through this process so that you can achieve that uh, that certification. Because that's, in the end, the main, the main aim is to be able to demonstrate that you are actually adhering to a standard so that you get the credibility for it. So plan with your auditor in terms of what you want to achieve. Hey, Al, thank you so much for joining us this week. Great having you on, especially covering a topic that's actually near and dear to my heart, which is uh, not just security, but also you know the compliance implications of these various security standards. I know every customer that I've ever worked with in Asia, uh, you know, on Microsoft 365, they all struggle with uh, meeting compliance requirements. So it's great that we have uh, fantastic tooling to help help them achieve those goals. And as you mentioned, you need to sort of work with your auditors to make sure that we're all in agreement on what kind of artifacts and evidence you're going to provide and what parts of the Microsoft 365 tooling will provide appropriate evidence um, to help satisfy the audit requirements. So again, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. And to all our listeners out there, again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.